Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this debate. <clears throat> uh, this is part of the LSC Festival, uh, New World Disorders, which is a festival uh, looking at how social science can address global issues. It's taking place throughout the week here at LSC. There are two, two events per evening, apparently. Um, so um, plenty of food for thought. My name is Rosa Balfour. I'm a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund based in Brussels. It's an American um, think tank looking at transatlantic relations. I work on Europe. And I'm also an associate of LSE Ideas, which is the foreign policy think tank of the London School of Economics. And I'm joined here this evening uh, to talk about populism by Professor Sarah Hobolt, who is a professor uh, at the Department of Government here um, at the LSE, and two postdoctoral fellows from the Darendorf uh, Forum, uh, Ben Martil, who is also based here at LSE, and Alexandru Filip, who's based at the Hertie School of Governance. And the event is um, a joint initiative of the Darendorf Forum and LSE Ideas, and um, is supported, it is part of a broader initiative between the LSE and the Hertie School of Governance, which is based in Berlin, and the Darendorf Forum is um, funded um, by the Mercator Stiftung. Um, the, the whole Darendorf Forum is committed to focusing on debates on the future of Europe and foreign policy. So I think today we'll have a, real, um, a great opportunity to have um, this exchange. I have a few instructions to give you. First of all, those of you who are on Twitter uh, can use the hashtags New World Disorders, which is the name of the festival, and of course LSE Festival. So if you'd like to do that, that would be fantastic. Um, please mute your phones, though, so that we're not um, disturbing the event. Um, and secondly, I'd just like to spend a few minutes describing the event. Um, this will not be a classic academic event. We really want this to be a conversation first among the panellists, and then we'd like to open it up to the audience. And in order to do this, there's going to be some voting. And you have a little device somewhere, and on the device you have two um, buttons. One is 1A, which means yes, and the other button is 2B, which means no. And you will be posed, I will be posing you some questions, um, and you will be invited to answer in 30 seconds, so you're going to have to be quick. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and, um, and, um, and then we'll see at the end um, what, uh, the, what your voting uh, leads to. You will also be entitled to change your mind. At this, in this place, that is possible. Um, so the first question we will ask... <laughs> at the end, we'll ask you this, the, the first question. We'll ask it to you again, just to see if you've changed your mind during the course um, of the discussion. So, um, what I'd like to start from, well, we're taking um, the, the opportunity, it comes from the publication of these two papers by these two researchers, um, which um, have been published, and you can pick up copies there outside. Um, and we'll start with um, Benjamin. And Ben, you, you, your starting point really is taking issue with the way in which the whole populist debate has been framed, um, the populist wave. And you're arguing that actually it's uh, far less homogeneous than is often um, understood and that we really need to sort of think a bit more analytically and critically. Um, so I'd like to just give you the cue for this. Can you tell us a little bit more about how heterogeneous um, the um, populist movements, parties are in Europe. Um, and what, what are we talking about? What is populism? 
Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much, Rosa. Um, so just a quick overview. The argument here is from the uh, commentary piece, Is There a Populist Wave in Europe? co-authored uh, with my colleague José Feo, who's also here. Uh, basically, what we're arguing is we're not disputing the fact that populism is on the rise across Europe. I think that's, that's fairly clear. And here, by populism, we mean uh, this sort of thin-centered ideology that tries to uh, establish uh, a people um, who, whose will um, has been corrupted by the elite, by external forces. This is sort of this much is common to most populist movements. So we don't say that that's not um, on the rise across Europe, but we we interrogate whether it's worth taking uh, the populist wave claim at face value because this has become uh, a rallying cry for the political centre at the moment, right? You think of centrist politicians saying there's a populist wave, a fifth column of populists, and this is why we need to get behind Europe's embattled centrist leaders. Um, And drawing on uh, academic work on uh, waves, uh, which we see in studies on democratisation, you might hear think about sort of waves and diffusion in the Arab Spring, We argue that to constitute a wave, any phenomenon needs to have three things. It needs to be homogenous, that is, it needs to be a similar phenomenon. It needs to be self-reinforcing in some important way. And it needs to be coordinated. And we're we're sceptical that the current uh, rise of populism meets these criteria. Uh, Populism itself is, like I said, a very thin ideology. Uh, You've got leftist populists who are reasonably cosmopolitan uh, in their views of the people, but still see the people as downtrodden, say, by financial elites. Whereas, of course, rightist populist parties much more focused on the nation, external enemy in some cases, uh, that's radical Islam, in others it's Europe. Uh, but even within right populist parties, there are very important programmatic differences. Mm-hmm. Okay? Big differences in their views on foreign policy, on economic policies. Some are very protectionist, some are very free market, laissez-faire. Uh, big views over, for instance, anti-Americanism, and even on their views on Europe, right? Especially when you think about the difference between UKIP and the IFD. Um, so there's big programmatic differences. We argue that the dynamics behind uh, the rise in populism are reasonably well understood. They might relate to international issues, um, Think here about uh, the effects of globalization, squeezed welfare uh, budgets, demographic change, aging populations, and of course the social media uh, echo chambers of which I'm sure you're all a part, I know I am. Um, These are global changes that are creating and interacting with local forces and causing a rise of populism, but what we're not seeing is these self-reinforcing effects. We're not seeing very strong evidence of learning or diffusion, or emulation, all these kind of modular phenomena that you see in other waves. Um, and then finally, we argue that there's, there's not as much coordination between these populist parties um, as you might think, right? Um, obviously, we're not back in the 1930s with uh, mutual intra-European antagonist, antagonistic nationalisms, um, but it's certainly the case that the local agendas of these parties and their efforts to... to focus attention on their people and doesn't lay very uh, good ground for cooperation. Uh, Coordination between these parties is ad hoc, it's sporadic, and when they do attend meetings together, it very often creates problems in the countries uh, where they're coming from. Um, And institutionalization, of course, is very weak. They sit in different groupings in the European Parliament. Um, There's no populist international. I don't suspect there ever will be. So where do we take this? What are the policy implications? Um, We think these differences are important. They might be subtle, but there's a lot at stake here. Uh, 
we worry that talk of a populist wave actually reinforces the self-identity of populist parties, which I think is not something that I'm keen to happen. Um, and we worry as well that treating populist parties as a homogenous block um, really precludes opportunities for either pragmatic engagement where those parties might not have views too dissimilar from the mainstream, uh, or if we want to be more cynical about it, um, it prevents opportunities to divide and rule. Um, so I'll leave it there. Thank you very much, because this gives me the opportunity to amend my mistake. I should have asked you the question first. Is the populist threat exaggerated? And you are supposed to answer now. You have 30 seconds to do that. Uh, but in the meantime, while you're voting and while you're thinking about this, um, I'd like to um, question somewhat what your, what, what your, your points... Um, we are heading... Um, towards um, in uh, European Parliament, or some of us are heading towards European Parliament elections in a few months' time. Uh, and uh, and um, <clears throat> there, things are happening. Hmm? Um, there is a lot of hype in the media, I agree with you very much, um, and sometimes that, that hype might actually reinforce um, the, the, the drive and the, the, the push towards uh, supporting populist movements. But there, also is quite a, there are quite a few things happening. Um, the European People's Party, which is the group which, um, um, in which the centre-right uh, belongs, um, includes uh, one uh, notable party with very strong populist roots, which is turning authoritarian. And this is Fidesz, the Hungarian party in power. And um, now there is, um, perhaps belatedly, talk about um, expelling Fidesz from the EPP. This would provide a cue for the formation of a far-right um, group um, in the European Parliament, which could actually have maybe even 20% of the, of the vote. So um, could it be that despite their differences, these parties might want to overcome them because they actually see the opportunity of building a, a different vision of Europe? Um, is, that, is that something which is a realistic scenario, or, or do you think it's um, hugely exaggerated? I think it's probably exaggerated a little. I mean, that they, ha they might have... Uh... <laughs> yeah, let's... Shall we just... <laughs> let's just take... Well, so you know where my vote is. Yes. Uh -huh. Okay, that's very interesting. Because, also because I, the question came after you had uh, sent out some... Uh, <laughs> so uh, you haven't managed to reassure the audience. <laughs> but I'm sure we can continue and maybe we'll see what the vote will be at the end. So... The populist threat is not exaggerated. Well, let's, let's given that we're talking about the far right, I mean, let's, let's perhaps say a few words about that because um, it might, you know, maybe you'd like to qualify what, what the fears might actually be. I, mean, I think it's, it's not about saying that we shouldn't be worried about populism. Mm -hmm. um, it's more taking stock of the lack of coordination and, and thinking about what that tells us yeah. about these populist parties. Now, I see some of the impediments to greater coordination are quite deeply rooted. Mm -hmm. If you don't, fundamentally, if populism is a, a thin ideology and if you don't have a coherent basis for agreement, you're not going to get very far. Mm -hmm. uh, Nigel Farage can come out and say all he wants that he's pro-European and he supports elements of what Marine Le Pen says, but it's a very thin basis on which to collaborate. And I think once you start to think about institutionalising uh, at, a, at a transnational European level, uh, you're going to have to come up with uh, some kind of a common programme and that's mm -hmm. going to be much more difficult. And again, it goes back to the fact that 
sort of politics 101 in a way. There might be an opportunity or there might be interest to collaboration, but very often the politics is exactly why that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not about saying that populism isn't a problematic ideology. It's not about saying this isn't on the rise. It's about being realistic about what it is and what mm. it isn't. Um, can I just, I've read a brilliant quotation, brilliant, I have a brilliant quotation, it's portable ideology, which I thought fits very, is very fitting uh, for the populists. Uh, but in Italy we have a government which is formed by two strong populist parties, very different, um, and um, everybody's predicting that the government will fall apart. Well, it hasn't yet, despite the fact that on policy they are completely divergent, and they seem to find compromise for the sake of being in power. Um, so is that, is, I mean, how, how strong do you think, how durable could this be? I mean, there's, I think there's enough um, sort of maybe distaste for the mainstream mm -hmm. and commonality in some areas to see sort of mm -hmm. continuation of Liga and Cinque mm -hmm. I don't see how it's any different from normal coalition mm -hmm. politics in a mm -hmm. way. Okay. Um, where you know that you're going to have to compromise with the other party to maintain your position of power. I mean, that's exactly why you have an incentive mm -hmm. to ignore some differences mm -hmm. or to, to trade off on some issues. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not quite sure that's exactly what's at stake okay. here. Okay. Which leads me to the second question, which is, is the populist movement unified? Again, you have... 30 seconds to answer. Um, A slash 1 is yes, and B slash 2 is no. I'm, quite, I'm interested in these results. And then we'll move on to Alex. If they will say yes, then no. What I'd like to ask Alex is perhaps um, more of a um, sociological approach to populism. Now let's just see the results here. Is the populist movement... Oh, you look at this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on this one you've been very persuasive. So. <laughs> um, but it's interesting how with this, the whole debate on populism, you worry that you know, it's, it, it's very difficult to ascertain the nature of the threat. Hmm? Um, so there are those who are crying wolf and, and those who are you know, seriously, uh, it's, it's very difficult to, 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 to sort of find the balancing point. Now, what I'd like to ask um, Alex is more about, as I said, the sort of sociological dimension. I think you know, rivers of ink have been, have been uh, used to talk about um, populism in general, in general, and I think the real question is, um, why do people vote populist? Uh, thank you, Rosa. Um, that is a very good question. Uh, by the way, uh, I agree for the record everything you have said so far this evening. <laughs> um, I also, uh, following up on this, I agree with with Ben that there is no unified, homogenous populist uh, uh, movement, and following up on this, there's no uh, unified block of populist voters. People vote for populist parties for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, that is basically one of the uh, two main points uh, in my paper, uh, that voting for populist or radical parties is multifactorial. And uh, quite often you have an, an, in, an interaction uh, or a, a co-determination of um, economic hard factors, as well as uh, ideational cultural factors. Uh, we love to talk about the losers of globalization, people who have been, uh, well, left behind 
uh, in the in the ever growing uh, opening of uh, of markets and uh, po politics. Um, at the same time, there's also a kernel of uh, cultural conservatism to this, mm -hmm. and it cannot just be reduced to uh, the poverty and the stresses that have been caused by globalization. Um, the second big point uh, that I make in my paper is that, uh, and following up from the first, it's no longer about the left and right, and I think we're moving in a post-left right, post versus right world. Um, basically, we're moving into a... We can, we can call it whatever we want, and many, many names have been used for this kind of idea. Uh, but I, I like to refer to it as uh, progressive versus conservative, um, or Galtan, as I referred to in the paper. And the idea is that uh, the, the competition is, is going on between progressive populists, if we can call them that, uh, guys like Podemos, uh, Syriza, green parties, to some degree they have an element of populism, but they're moving in a way ever more uh, to the center, and they're, whilst in the 80s and 90s green parties used to be heavily Eurosceptic, uh, now they tend to be uh, among the most cosmopolitan pro-European parties out there. And on the other hand, we have right-wing parties uh, who tend to be, uh, well, everything but uh, progressive. Um, and we still have the mainstream parties who have been slow to adapt and to react to this shift in, uh, in uh, conflict dimension. Um, so now we, we don't no longer have a two-dimensional uh, conflict, if we ever had a two-dimensional political competition. But we find ourselves, I think, with the populist parties basically on a vertical fighting on a vertical dimension, and the mainstream parties still fighting on a horizontal left versus right dimension. And with time, I think they'll have to shift and adapt as well. So what you're talking about is a distinction between green, alternative, progressive versus identity, nationalist, conservative. Yes. Okay. Um, I'd like to throw in, if you don't mind, before we continue the conversation, a question about, um, next question, about is the, um, um, is the distinction between left and right, is it still um, relevant? Because I think some will challenge the notion that in the past you know, th th those, those distinctions were still there, even in, in the sort of traditional left versus right. You know, it was progressive versus conservative. Isn't that a sort of, isn't that a, fa a feature of history? Yes. What's, what's, what's different? Shall I answer or yeah. shall I wait? Oh, okay. no, we have to wait for the question. Sorry, yeah. Right. Go ahead. You have 30, 26 seconds now. I mean, there's a lot of literature on sort of materialist, post-materialist values, I'm just wondering how that pans out. On, and also, what, what's different compared to the past? I mean, there's always been progressive and conservative forces. So maybe just may explain that. Right. Is the distinction still relevant? Yes. 62%. Quite a few haven't replied, though. So there still is some... <laughs> okay, so some. we're no longer in agreement. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in, in the past, yes, there, there was a progressive and a... Uh, uh, conservative poll also in the past. However, it used to, uh, to a much higher degree to map onto the left-right uh, dimension. Um, more specifically, uh, the left used to be, uh, used to be uh, uh, progressive and at the same time, let's put it this way, they used to be economically protectionist mm -hmm. and at the same time uh, pursue cultural liberalization. Whereas the right-wing Mm -hmm. used to be economically liberal mm -hmm. uh, and be uh, culturally protectionist. Mm -hmm. 
and we have seen a, uh, a shift of the far right uh, towards welfare chauvinism. Mm -hmm. uh, this wasn't always the case. Mm -hmm. The fact that all of a sudden, well, it's not really all of a sudden, it's been going on uh, over the past few decades and picking up speed, that right-wing parties have become the protectors of the working class, of, of the working people, of, 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 the, of the lower classes, to a degree to which that you didn't used to be the case in the past. In the past, when you thought of the working class, of those pushing for protection of the welfare state, social policy, etc., cetera, uh, these used to be the left-wing parties. Now, they may be all rhetorical uh, instruments. We don't know deep down how committed these parties really are. I mean, some of these parties used to be heavily anti-welfare state up until the 90s. We're talking about the right wing. Uh, but as the, at the moment, they are uh, pushing very hard uh, this uh, uh, theme of we are the protectors of the losers of globalization. At the same time, we notice that uh, among the voters of the left-wing parties, there tends to be something like a gentrification going on. Mm -hmm. uh, more educated people voting for, for, for left-wing and progressive parties. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems to me that the, the left-right and uh, progressive uh, conservative mm -hmm. dimension, uh, they've, it's become un... Uh, well, what's the word? It's no longer connected to this, uh, uh, to this, uh, to the left and to the right. A lot of right-wing parties, what we think of as right-wing parties, actually, if you look at their economic program, they tend to be very left-wing. Actually, you also have in your paper you have a broader point where the sort of you know what you're saying. This is not just about the rise of populism. This is actually this, this, there's a bigger shift going on in in European politics, and you're sort of taking. Um, the broader picture. It's not just populism that is challenging what we know, um, the, the sort of uh, tra traditional party system, there are bigger shifts going on. Is, is, that what, is that what you're saying? So the sort of connectors between the left and the right, class and identity, culture and worldviews is shifting by and large? I don't know what's the chicken and what's the egg. Mm. Um, they, they go together, and I wouldn't be able to give an answer as to whether, for example, it's independent of uh, the populist rise. Um, again, we mustn't talk about a populist wave because mm -hmm. there are very, very uh, big differences in these populist policy entrepreneurs. Um, but it's been happening at the same time, and my belief is that it's a self-reinforcing process, uh, that as these populist parties of very oppos opposing uh, ideological orientation make more noise, the issue gains more and more uh, traction, goes more higher up on the agenda, and, well... Yeah. Well, um, Sarah, you've been studying the European political party system, and I know that you have... You want to say something about the sort of bigger picture, not just focusing um, solely on the populist uh, narrative. Do you want to comment on also on the presentations that we've had mm -hmm. so far, and also is you know on the sort of is this the new normal mm -hmm. or is it um, uh, something that needs to be contained and, and fought back? I mean, there is a tendency, I mean, to focus on these sort of dramatic shifts. I guess that's why we're all here tonight because you know populism is this sort of exciting and threatening and scary new phenomenon. And when we look at the coverage of it, everyone is sort of, oh, let's look at the rise of the far right in Germany. And that's the thing we focus on. We don't focus on perhaps why has 
uh, Angela Merkel been so amazingly successful and resilient in holding on to power for that long, despite an economic crisis, despite an immigration inflow, and so on. So, so I guess what I wanted to do to sort of bring a bit of a counterpoint uh, to this is I wanted to show you these sort of last hundred years of a of uh, vote shares in Europe. Uh, so this is since uh, 1918. This is Western Europe. And, um, and what you can see there, if you look at the sort of three bottom uh, uh, color blocks there, these are the conservative Christian Democratic, gray, and then the red are the Social Democratic Party family, and yellow, it's the liberal. Is perhaps if you just look at that, one thing I think you see is just the amazing continuity and resilience. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So you will have seen a lot of newspaper articles that talk about the collapse of the center. I was recently called up by the Washington Post and they're like, oh, we want to talk to you about you know, why this political center have collapsed. And I said, well, it hasn't. Uh, it has maybe in certain places, we talked about Italy, but it hasn't overall. Yeah, so that's the first thing. And in a sense, these party families have in part been so successful because of the way they're rooted in social structures, because of the way people are still attached to certain party families, and because they've been able to have these sort of catch-all party brands. But the second thing maybe to notice about this picture then is, is what we're talking about tonight, which is if we look at the last decade... There has been a move towards parties on the ideological extreme, both the right and the left, although we tend to focus more on the right, uh, both the right and the left. And that's where the populist parties that we've talked about are, mm-hmm. are generally situated, and they have increased in strength. And again, some of that is to do with this comes in the aftermath of the, of the financial crisis and the sovereign debt crisis in Europe. Uh, that has made the appeals. But some of it, if you sort of look underneath the hood, is also that there's been a real shift in how voters, uh, voters' relationship with parties. So it used to be you sort of grew up very much that your political preferences and party allegiances were very much to do with, you know, your social class. If you're working class, you'd be you sort of labor social democrat or your religion and so on. And that's shifting. So voters are much more sort of critical consumers today. They're not as attached to parties. And that means once you have parties such as the populist party that come with something appealing on offer, then they're more likely they can do very well in elections. So I do think so. So in the sort of we had this question on the is it all exaggerated? So you know you can never sort of get quite a straight answer from an academic. So and it's, I think it's sort of yes and no. I mean, the, the, it is exaggerated to the extent that we haven't seen the collapse of the major mm-hmm. party families, but it's not exaggerated to the extent that I think we will see this is not just a blip. Mm-hmm. We will see more of these kind of parties doing very well because voters are just so much more volatile in how they behave in elections. But- Given that we're in London, can I ask you, what happens when a populist agenda takes over a mainstream party, um, like in the UK or in the US? Um, Then you have an impact of populism that goes beyond the actual populist party, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, so, yes, yeah, so you're saying, okay, well, it's, I mean, going back to the definition, going back to the definition, I would not call the Conservative Party, it's clearly a Eurosceptic party. Mm-hmm. Is that the same as, as populism? And that's, again, you know, this thin-centered definition. Yeah. If we go back to our definition that you uh, outlined in the beginning of this antagonism between mm-hmm. the, the people and the corrupt evil elite, I mean, you cannot say that Theresa May is a populist. Mm-hmm. The referendum as an instrument is, in a sense, populist because it takes this will of the people and glorifies it. But I would not say that the Conservative Party as a party is a populist party. And that partly goes back to this, what is the, the concept mm-hmm. of it that is used to an extent. You know, to be fair, often used in a way we don't like something we see, the sort of liberal metropolitan elite 
tweet, you said, you know, we're in London, and then we call it populist. But it's sort of the degree of sort of concept stretching. So I wouldn't, I would not characterize the Conservative Party as a, as a populist party. Although, of course, the rhetoric that's now used by leavers, sort of hard Brexiteers is populist in a sense because they use the, the referendum as that cannot, that is the will of the people, so that's sacrosanct. So in that sense, there's elements of it, but I would think if you look more broadly at the mm-hmm. Conservative Party policy position, I think it'd be a stretch mm-hmm. to call it populist. Maybe you, you two will agree, disagree, but that, that would be my take okay. on it. Thank you. Before we open up for discussion, I do want to ask a question, and maybe I'd ask also you to contribute to this, because we talked about the sort of Uh, social origins of populism. We talked about what is populism and we've tried to contextualize it um, historically. But there are questions of political action. How do politicians today respond to populism? So I'd like to open the question on this. Um, Should mainstream parties adopt populist tactics? And while you're answering the question, I'd like to invite the panelists to think of a sentence or two on how how mainstream parties should respond to Um, populism. So you've still got 20 seconds to think about it. Of of course, for instance, Chantal Mouffe, who's a left radical populist, has argued that she's argued in favor of a populist left. Um, So there are different ways of also looking at this. There are plenty of center-right politicians who've been adopting um, main, uh, populist tactics and we've got different examples of success some have failed miserably um, others have been quite successful so the answer is no, 30, uh, no, yes yes, no, no, sorry <laughs> sorry um, conf- the colours confuse me a bit um, <laughs> no, it's the red for me is stop uh, whereas here it's a yes okay, so 60% think that mainstream parties um, uh, should adopt should should adopt populist tactics. What do you think? No, no, should, not. should not. Sorry, sorry. God, a total mess. Sorry. So what I do you might, think, um, Ben? If I might come in here, I think I'll respectfully disagree. I think one of the reasons that it's often said that we the, the mainstream. You don't know what I am. I am mainstream. Um, I think one of the reasons uh, there's a kind of a program about this is the association between the populism and notions of kind of uh, mm-hmm. radical right and racism. Actually, I think when you look at um, some sort of centrist movements, you see here that elements of what the populist or insurgent parties are doing is working. Think about Macron and the idea of creating a new party and sort of replacing elites. This is something that also mm-hmm. appears in Alex's work. Um, but also the idea that we learn from the populist uh, maybe uh, the need to reinvigorate some kind of form of civic nationalism. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean here the sort of nationalist opprobrium. I'm talking about the kind of, you know, the uh, Trudeaus of this world that say what we need to be proud of is our nation's contribution to Mm -hmm. international society. I mean, that's a kind of claim that can resonate on the same level as sort of populist claims about nationhood, but it's not exclusionary, it's not Mm -hmm. non-cosmopolitan. And maybe even just the idea of taking uh, the agenda... Um, this is something that insurgent parties do very well, mm-hmm. said, uh, is getting issues on the agenda and getting the mainstream mm-hmm. to respond to them. So I think there are certain elements, certain tactics that the mainstream can actually learn from these parties uh, without adopting necessarily their uh, programs. Alex, what do you think? Is there something to be learned from the populist parties? Um, as they say in Germany, jein. Um, <laughs> LAUGHTER So on the one hand, I tend to agree again with the audience. Um, that it can be dangerous that we have a responsibility to uphold uh, a certain style uh, and civility 
uh, to politics, and if we believe in representative democracy as opposed to direct democracy, uh, then we must, on the one hand, not fall prey to this uh, plebiscitary uh, empowerment. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Macron, for example, he's, uh, and, and Marsh, uh, what they did was, to some degree, they tried to uh, uh, create a uh, plebiscitary uh, type of legitimacy behind the uh, pro-European uh, idea. And I think if this is done in small doses, it can be good. Um, I think I read somewhere in your paper, Ben, something about a, a apathetic uh, European majority and trying to galvanize it. And I think that is true. I think there is such a thing as a apathetic uh, mainstream who, is, let's say, they're more pro-European. Um, but they are uh, low energy, to use the language of, of Trump. And what, what uh, Macron, for example, uh, tried to do was uh, to, to, to give a new face to this centrist uh, pro-European uh, attitude and say, come on, guys, let's do it. Let's go out and vote. Uh, Ciudadanos in Spain, they're also this kind of thing. They're, from a, uh, from a uh, policy or programmatic point of view, they're no different from uh, old uh, center-right parties. But they're saying, we're a new party. We're not part of the old fossilized elite. By the way, we're center-right and pro-European. Uh, again, there's a, a touch, a nuance of populism there. And also green parties. Now, green parties, um, they are... They are... Uh, they, they also have an anti-elitist uh, nuance, I would say, to some degree. They tend to be uh, uh, us, the youth, against the, the old uh, corrupt interests uh, that destroy our earth. Um, and they, at least in Germany, recently they've, they've even become uh, the third largest parties in, in some vote attention polls. In some federal states, they became the second uh, largest party, actually. And they are playing on this card, they are saying, okay, well, you're going to mobilize your conservative uh, uh, angry people. We're going to mobile, try to mobilize our uh, enthusiastic, joyful, positive, pro-European people. And again, the Greens also have a touch of this uh, Macronist, Ciudadanoist-like uh, populist energy. So a bit of it can be useful, I think, because we, I think it, it's needed. I think, I think uh, uh, sensible politics and policies need new energy. So, the silver lining. What do, what do you think, Sarah? Do you, do you agree that populism is shaking up politics and that there's some positive elements that could be adopted also by mainstream parties? I mean, I agree with the audience on, on how they responded, but I think that the answers here kind of go back to this problem with how we use poli yeah. mm -hmm. populism, because now all of a sudden populism became energy in politics. I mean, you can, Macron had energy, but I would not think he's a populist. Mm -hmm. I mean, he doesn't believe in that fundamental antagonism between uh, the people and the evil corrupt elite. I mean, he wanted more than anything else to be that, you know, political establishment. So, so this idea that, you know, having energy in politics and presenting new fresh ideas that's essentially populist. I mean, I just think it becomes so watered down mm -hmm. what we even mean by it, that it's no longer useful. So it's basically anyone who's a bit new or a bit popular, that's populist. I mean, so, so in that sense, I'm not sure it's useful. I think what's maybe more useful to, to think about is does populism raise certain grievances and to what extent should other parties engage directly with them? And I think that's exactly what Macron did. He didn't say, oh no, let's just ignore the fact that there are sort of 
people who like Le Pen who are arguing against immigration are arguing against Europe, which is what mainstream parties have done for decades in Europe. He said, no, let's tackle them head on, but let's present a very different vision. And I think that what Macron did and others is present a very different vision. So it's not, is that then because he engages with the populace? I wouldn't think so, but he did, um, he did do that. And that's a big debate particularly within European social democracy. Because if you, you, you remember the graph before, the one mainstream party family that has really suffered the most from the rise of, of populist parties on the left and the right is social democ- democratic parties, more than the centre-right. And so the big debate right now in European social democracy is what do we do about, for example, the concerns about immigration and Euroscepticism? Do we internalise it and make that part of our policy platform, as some uh, European social democratic parties have done more and more? So in a sense, do we accommodate, or do we say, no, we have a different vision? Yeah? And so in that sense, uh, that, that's two very different. And they have someone like Macron is clearly on the, yes, we engage, but we don't accommodate. Mm-hmm. And I think for the Social Democrats, the jury's still out. We're not entirely sure where they're going to be, where they're heading um, in the next few months. Right, I would like to open this up for discussion. Fantastic. We have a roving microphone. I have a one hand up. Great. I'm going, to take, I'm going to take a few. So I'm going to ask our speakers to make notes so that um, comments and questions are fine. And um, please um, tell us who you are, because we don't necessarily know all of you. So the lady at the end there, to start with. Right. Um, my name's Meg Lee Chin. I'm a left-wing populist. <laughs> I, I was freaked out um, by the poll that said that everybody is threatened by populists. And then I realized that after 10 years of austerity, I'm 58 years old, I lived through the 80s, the 90s, I was a musician. But I realized that um, if I look around now, there's very few working class people in academia anymore, in education, because I know tuition is really, really high. And I think you're freaked out by populism populism, basically because there's not a lot of representation amongst the working classes in academia anymore. But, you know, I I sense a lot of snobbery with all due respect. Um, This sort of sneering attitude towards populism like it's something... There's this unanimous underlying narrative that says automatically that it's negative. Let me share with you You know, the Brexit vote was the most exciting thing that's happened to me in my entire lifetime. I'm 58 years old. Yeah, I've been a non-globalist, anti-monopoly. Globalism is merely monopoly, but on a global scale. And I just think think it's a travesty, and I blame it on um, on this uh, lack of uh, the, the funding, the 10 years of austerity that we've suffered. Thank you very much for that contribution. uh, Due to globalization. Okay, now there's, there's a gentleman here at the front, uh, second, third row and also the gentleman yes, so maybe afterwards you can pass the microphone over, thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, I would like to... Uh, can I ask you to introduce yourself? Yes, sorry. my name is Asif. Um, what was interesting to me about the first question was the premise of it, the use of the word threat. Um, so what I find quite interesting in this debate. Um, first of all, I agree with your definition of how you define populism is that antagonism towards the corrupt evil elite. 
where, where I would disagree with the panel probably is that I'm not sure that the centrist elites are not turning into authoritarians themselves. Um, they haven't been able to protect the sacred principles like uh, free speech, for example. Uh, people are um, getting arrested now for um, commenting things online that go against uh, the progressive uh, ideology, for example, on transgenderism. Uh, or we know about the arrest and uh, conviction of Count Dankula for making a joke online. And Tommy Robinson today, his uh, uh, Facebook page and Instagram uh, page was deleted, uh, all because he dared to expose the corrupt uh, media um, YouTube panorama, and you'll see his expose of uh, BBC's panorama. And so these uh, centrist uh, liberal elite, they haven't been able to protect these, some of these crucial uh, principles of, uh, of a liberal democracy. So I'm not, I actually, I, I, we should be, feel threatened by the more increasing authoritarian centrist elites, and uh, populism is actually a breath of fresh air. Thank you. Can you pass it to the gentleman front? Thank you. Okay. No, please go ahead. I, I, in the meantime, keep your hands up so I can see you. Um, my name's Frank McGlone. I'm a retired academic, but in a, a different field. Um, my, I'm just basically going to put forward a question, um, and that is, we haven't really talked about um, Corbyn's Labour Party. Is Corbyn's Labour Party populist? I mean, there seems to be a number of elements in it that you would say yes, uh, or we'd say that parts of the Labour Party are now moving in that direction. Other parts are not. We're seeing the sort of shrinkage of the social democratic side of it and the growth in this more populist element that seems to hit the nail. Uh, you know, some of the things that we've been saying, what's well, populism hits the nail on the head when you talk about Corbyn's Labour Party. Okay, the mic wasn't, wasn't um, functioning well, so I'll just repeat very short, very briefly, is Corbyn's, party, is Corbyn's party turning populist? And then, yes, here, and then there, and then we'll go in that direction. Okay, actually, that's a good, good moment for my question because it follows on uh, directly from what you said. And it's really uh, also in the form of a question. Um, is it accurate to talk about mainstream versus populist parties? Are we not seeing the emergence of populism within mainstream parties? And this depends very much on the electoral system we're talking about. So first past the post system, uh, the divisions, the fragmentation, if you like, which is oft oh, the result of globalization and the loss of you know, traditional political allegiances, is that not reproduced within mainstream parties as well? Are we not seeing the emergence of fragments, some of which are, are um, populist and some aren't? Uh, so in other words, it, it, it is related, I would argue, this, you know, what I believe is the emergence of populism within mainstream parties, related to the loss of traditional clientele, social, social class clientele and so on. Thank you. Now, there's a gentleman over there, and then I'm going to move to this star in this over there. Yeah, uh, at the end with the with the apple. Yeah. So uh, comment on a que I'm Gonzalo. So I comment on a question. Uh, first, the co comment about if uh, populism should be used by mainstream parties. I think if you if you read uh, Laclau or Chantal Move, which were a uh, great. Uh, uh, influence for Podemos, they say that uh, if populism articulated in a progressive way, it can make democracy um, better. Uh, 
and it can improve yeah, our electoral power and society. And the question in the graph that uh, you showed, uh, it was clear that the conservative party is not losing as much as the uh, social democratic parties. Why do you think is this? Maybe because they, they are using the rhetoric, the populist rhetoric better. Why is the left uh, losing more than, than, the, than the right as a whole in this populist era? Thanks. Thank you. I'm going to come back to the panel. In pills, if you can pick and choose and answer some of the questions and comments, because I do want to give, yes, one, two, three, four, at least four more people, five more people. So please start, and then we'll get the second round in. Um, ben, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Um, let me just pick up on a couple of the last few questions. So um, why is the left floundering more than the right? Well, I think part of it has to do with um, the relative success of uh, social democratic parties maybe about a decade ago their association with uh, what we now understand as sort of financial globalization, neoliberalism, uh, this sort of movement of the many social democratic parties away from their roots. You especially saw that with New Labour. Um, and then the kind of backlash against that. I mean, in other cases, it's much more proximate explanations, right? I mean, if you look at Germany, what is the SPD going to do when they're kind of forced into coalition um, but end up being the junior party? Like, they're not able to develop their own voice, so their voters tend to go to the Greens and the Linker and the other parties. Um, I completely agree with uh, what the gentleman at the front said on um, sort of institutions about the electoral system, particularly in the UK. Um, I, I think, I guess the point would be um, what happens when these mainstream parties become populist, and why does it happen? In the UK, it was so easy. It was because UKIP could effectively challenge, in a majoritarian system, UKIP could challenge uh, Tory marginals across the board simply by taking 2,000 or so votes in every constituency. And they succeeded in tabling the referendum and then shifting the rhetoric of the party to the point where Farage turned around after the referendum and said, well... What's the point? May is saying things that I've said for 10 years and been disparaged for. So I think the point there would be that the UK system copes very poorly with the changes that Alex has pointed out. Thank you, Alex. Again, briefly, because we need to um, finish on time. And Thank you. Plenty of questions. Uh, so uh, I agree with you on this. I was going to pick up on those two questions. Um, uh, the question, is Corbyn a populist? Uh, is a Labour Party a populist party? Is Bernie Sanders a populist? Would the, would the, the U.S. Democratic Party uh, be a populist party if Bernie Sanders were to win the nomination for the presidency or if he were to become a president? Is the conservative par part, is the Republican Party in the USA a populist party because of Trump, uh, who is clearly a populist? I think uh, these questions are really difficult to answer in, uh, in majoritarian systems. Um, and is it accurate to talk of populist versus mainstream? The problem with the UK is that actually you have many parties within each of the big two parties. You have a couple of parties in the Labour Party. You have a couple of parties in, within the Conservative Party. Uh, and some of these are populist, some are mainstream. And the fact that you have uh, uh, these two big blocks masks things. Um, why the left lost more? If we were to look at the slide uh, again that Sarah uh, uh, presented us, liberal parties also lost a lot. The, the yellow streak also got thinner. But and economically, the liberals... Before the war, yeah. Um, yeah. Because they lost that to the Social Democrats. Um, so, also, we must remember that the Greens 
also uh, are a recent phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And the Greens and, and the Social Democrats, to some degree, have a inverse uh, relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, people from the Social Democrats tend to go to the Greens. Okay, thank you. Sorry, I, I yeah, don't no want to interrupt, yeah. but we have we are under time pressure. Just just one one quick comment, which I think addressed sort of this populist: is it a party type or is it is it a sort of continuum? And of course, you know. It's, it's, you, can, you can look at it either way. But if we think of it as a sort of continuum, all parties have something populist, and we think about the rhetoric, clearly there is populist rhetoric being used by what we might think of mainstream parties. But if you do analyze that more systematically, and I've, I've been involved in a project that do that, it is far, far more common amongst parties we might classify. So it's not like, oh, it's all the same, we just like to, in that sense. I mean, clearly someone like Corbyn, also that's an attractive position being, you know, in the Position uses populist, sort of typical populist rhetoric of the left in terms of attacking the media, attacking sort of what we might think of as sort of mainstream political institutions. But again, I, I agree with what's been said. You know, the Labour Party is a, you know, sort of coalition amongst many factions, some of, some of which don't use that kind of rhetoric at all. So, so I think, yes. It's not sort of only, we don't see this only on the, on the, in the sort of quote-unquote populist parties, but I still think of, you can think of that rhetoric, you can think of these party classifications as useful to some extent in that they just use it, that's, that is the political platform in a very different way than we normally see on the mainstream. Thank you. Now I have five more questions clustered here. So first the gentleman, then to the back, and then over there. And I, I have to ask you to be very brief. Uh, right, thank you. Um, is this coming through all right? Yes, I think it is. Um, I have three points to make, really. Um, the, the, to answer the question, a populist wave, first of all, I'd like to expose three myths. One is that populism a is a smear um, introduced against the electors who the establishment don't like, and more importantly, who the electors don't, uh, don't like. Um, in 74, or, uh, sorry, in 70, yeah, in in 74, I stood for a movement for regional parliaments yeah. with bottom-up control. We do not have a united Europe. Quite clearly, we do not have a united kingdom. It's divided every which way, as is Europe. And we need bottom-up parliaments, as recommended by Leopold Kor in the 50s, in his book called Breakdown of... Now, listen... Yeah, you, I've listened to a lot of other people speaking. You've interrupted me three times. It's taking me longer to say what I would have said if you'd called me earlier. Thank you. So I'm, you, I'm saying Leopold Kor told us all in, in the mid-50s it was time for the end of the nation-state. The nation-state establishment here is corrupt, uh, a, a, fa a serial failure, and the establishment here uh, is, is time is over. We've passed... Um, the time of the Victorian era, and this new movement, which is not populist, it is popular, is going to see the end of this corrupt system that we have. Thank you very much. Now, there is um, just behind, the three questions just behind this gentleman, so... Uh, so my question is, the, the European integration, the European project, required or rested upon to some degree uh, cross-party consensus within the individual member states. The graph you showed saw uh, showed a, a fragmentation of the European party political system, and there doesn't seem to be any reason to think that's going to slow. So my question, I suppose, is, is the European Union institutionally equipped to continue in its current form, um, and what can it do to adapt itself to what is quite clearly a very changing um, political system? 
Thank you. Yes. Um, so, uh, as far as I get it, you basically done your research based on um, Europe as a whole, but uh, I, I'm just curious to hear your take on uh, sub-regional uh, level and specifically on Central and Eastern Europe. And again, in light of your uh, definition of um, popula the populist wave, uh, EA, uh, homogenous, self-reinforcing, and coordinated. And especially, um, I'm interested to hear what you think about the fact that they've been following similar fiscal policies, they've been pretty coordinated on uh, EU policies, specifically on Article 7 and the ongoing rule of law against Hungary and uh, Poland. And um, I also would like to hear what you think will follow. Uh, do you see their uh, popularity residing after, let's say, an economic slow slowdown or, um, or anything like okay. that? Um, who was, was it you here with the brown uh, shirt? No. Okay. So then there was the gentleman with the glasses. He's got his hands up. Uh, I will be brief. Um, just, I, I suppose my question is, the two questions that seem to have been posed tonight are, is there a popular wave that is in some ways a threat to the, um, a threat to the existing order? And secondly, are those popular parties uh, united? And I don't necessarily see how the two questions uh, follow on from each other. UKIP didn't need to become part of a great European movement to fundamentally change the politics of this country. Orban didn't need influence in France and Italy to help move Hungary to a more authoritarian direction. Thank you very much. So we have a question on the EU, we have a question on Central Europe, and we have a question on collaboration. Ah, we have a question over there, and then I'll, I'll have to close it. Sorry, I'm sorry. Um, and then I'll have to close it and ask you maybe just to pick on one, not answer all the questions or, or issues raised. Hello, and are we doing the voting at the end? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> okay, Please. thank you. Um, so uh, you briefly mentioned how like, there are other bigger shifts that are sort of like challenging politics right now, uh, Dr. Philip. And basically, I was just wondering what your take on inequality is in this in this phenomenon, if you think that inequality has been affecting people's thoughts about populism and if sort of like draws them to, to it, or if even like populism affects inequality in a, in a way. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm, I'm glad we also have a question on inequality because we haven't really talked about that. Who would like to tackle what? Who wants to start? Ben, do you want to start? Ben, sorry, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Um, um, okay, so I think it's a very interesting question about Central and Eastern Europe. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think what's interesting about the region, of course, is uh, we as political scientists have a lot to learn from scholars of Central and Eastern Europe because they saw a lot of um, sort of populist yeah. movements before they were trendy over here, right? There was this whole sort of discussion about weakly institutionalised party systems, um, I mean, if you look at Slovakia in particular, when Fico was elected, he was, at Smer, was seen as this big populist party, and now he seems like the moderate in the region because populists have got so much worse. I suppose I would say that a lot of the coordination you, you see between... There is, a, I think, a distinct kind of Central East populism. I think it does have its own characteristics, but a lot of the collaboration there is also because these are populists that are close to government as well. So I think a lot of it's just kind of functional. And, and there there's a question about kind of co-optation into the system. And it speaks to the gentleman's very good point as well about whether the EU is equipped um, to continue. I do see some very important structural impediments there, especially when it comes to dealing with these kind of spoiler countries, like how does the EU deal with Orban? It's very, very difficult because you need a kind of reckoning 
moment at which you, you know, it would be pointed out that, well, do you want to continue benefiting from Europe and the EU and integration, or do you really want um, you know, to, sort of, to, to create this sort of distinct identity? Um, and I think that's impossible at the moment. So you have this problem where you get a lot of member states can accrue all of the benefits and place all the blame, externalise all the blame onto the EU. Thank you. Alex, do you want to um, tackle something? Yes. Um, first of all, I would like to say that um, these populist parties are capable of wreaking enough havoc, even if they have zero cross-national uh, uh, cooperation, uh, as we saw in the UK. You don't need uh, a unified European front of populists for them to do damage nationally. And now to come to the issue of uh, equality. Um, globalization is a fait accompli. Fortunately, unfortunately, and the problem is it has generated losers and winners. It has had distributional and redistributional consequences, including inequality. And here I'd like to touch upon some of the comments today regarding whether populist, populism is a slander word, a bad word, and so on. The problem with populism is it promises the world. Uh, it promises that they will uh, solve the problem of equality and inequality. They will solve social problems. One of the characteristics of populism is that they tend to simplify things. It tends to be reductionist. The world isn't so complex. It's e the problems are easy to solve. We've got the answers. So vote for us, okay? And that's actually not the case. Uh, the, the world's problems are very complex. Political and economic problems are complex, and we don't always, or often, we don't have the answers. And unfortunately, we don't like inequality. We don't really know how to solve. We're trying to tackle it every day of our lives. The problem is, I think that populism can be a bad word or can be a critique against somebody. You are a populist when that individual promises the world and promises to solve uh, uh, inequality uh, via sleight of hand. Because I think that's insincere. Thank you very much. Sarah, and can I just prepare you, because I'd like you to vote again on whether the populist threat is exaggerated. Um, I think we can start, because I think you've made up your minds, and Sarah, so you don't need to think while Sarah speaks, because we're under a bit of time pressure. Thank you. Sarah, please, no, go ahead. I think it's okay if you talk. Oh, okay. Um, well, just on the, what are the challenges facing Europe with populism, I think that clearly this is going to be a major challenge for governance in the European Union. First of all, the fragmentation makes the kind of coalition building we've seen more difficult. But also, more importantly, I think the key challenge is when populists come, get into government. To what extent do they change their tune and sort of become mainstreamed and, 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 and abandon some of the, the policies? And to what extent do they continue with this, for example, very anti-European agenda? And I think that's... it's. That is the greater problem almost than the fragmentation. How do they? How do? How do, does Europe handle that? And I think that's uh, that's only going to be a greater challenge after the, the European Parliament elections in May this year. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you very much. We've had a very rich uh, discussion. Is the populist threat exaggerated? Um, yes, only 19%, and no, 55%. So there is a change in opinion during this discussion, which means that. Um, I think that means that you've been effective. <laughs> um, I would like to thank uh, the organisers for putting together this event. I would like to thank the speakers. But also, I'd like to thank you for your interest.